Blog Talk Radio. Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have what will be a really thrilling and much-needed discussion with Sam Daly-Harris, who has been on A Better World Radio in the past, some time ago back when we were still part of uh, Progressive Radio Network, and uh, we've since moved on and evolved, and uh, we've asked Sam to come back to talk about a real evolutionary step in his work as well, which is um, <clears throat> the latest anniversary issue of Reclaiming Democracy, Healing the Break Between People and Governments. For those of you who listen to this show with any regularity know that <clears throat> this subject of what I refer to as uh, sacred stewardship, and then, as my good friend Andrew Harvey describes as sacred activism, is this notion that we want to bring our heart, mind, and soul into the world, into the commons, into the marketplace, and into the interface of citizens with government. And I don't have to tell you what trouble we have all collectively had with that interface, where we have all felt in our own ways, very personal, at home, existential, the sense of hopelessness, of helplessness, uh, in the face of a world run amok. And we ask the question, of course, what can we do about it? Who are we? In fact, it was really very much this kind of thinking that originally propelled me to begin a Better World television back in March of 1993 and have been going ever since. But Sam Daly-Harris, our guest today, who we'll get to in a moment, has taken this kind of thinking and this kind of work to another level. He is the founder of, as it is appropriately called, Results. And Results, as an organization, has identified and advocated for effective solutions to the causes of poverty and worked successfully to increase political will on a grassroots level and funding for these solutions through a powerful citizen action. In 1995, Sam initiated the Microcredit Summit campaign, which surpassed its initial goal of reaching 100 million of the world's poorest families with microloans. In 2007, Nobel Peace Prize laureate Muhammad Yunus said, quote, No other organization has been as critical a partner in seeing to it that microcredit is used as a tool to eradicate poverty and empower women than results. And the Microcredit Summit campaign. Daly Harris is author of Reclaiming Our Democracy, Healing the Break Between People and Government, which we will be going into in some depth here on today's show, which according to Former President Jimmy Carter provides a roadmap for global involvement in planning a better future. So 
so you can understand why Sam is a natural for this show, A Better World. And so without further ado, I'd really like Sam to bring you on and talk to us about how you have dealt with. After all, you were a musician. You were a percussionist for the Miami Philharmonic. How is it that you went from that to doing the phenomenal work that you're doing now? Well, great. Hi. It's great to be with you. Um, you know, I, I, it also is a, a kind of a crazy shift, in, and I would also want to call it a shift from obliviousness and hopelessness and then into action. So as you'd mentioned, I, my, I have a degree in music, actually bachelor's and master's, and played in a symphony and taught high school for many years a long mm-hmm. time ago. And then I started a citizen lobby on ending global poverty. And people obviously go, no, what was that about? And what motivated that kind of change? And when I look sure. back in my life, there are two events that stand out. I graduated from high school in 1964 and played timpani in the orchestra at the ceremony. And just before the ceremony began, the graduation, a flute player came back and told me, that a high school fraternity brother a year younger had died the day before in a tractor-trailer accident in Georgia. And it was her next-door neighbor, so she knew about it before I did. And, you know, I've done a lot of campus lectures this fall where a lot of students in the room are close to 17. I am no longer close to 17. But when (laughs) I was 17, you know, mortality was an irrelevant concept. I mean... I really thought I had forever. But with the death of this friend and the mourning period and the funeral, after the funeral, I went with his younger brother to collect his report card from the homeroom teacher. It really began to dawn on me that maybe I had 17 more minutes or months or years, and the questions Mm. of purpose started to come up. Why am I here? What am I here to do? What's my purpose? I I love this quote from Mark Twain who said, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. And so mm-hmm. that's where I was I really launched into the why question. Four years later, yes. college graduation day, 1968, the night before Robert Kennedy's assassinated. And it's another one of those, what is this life? What is this death? Why am I here? What am I here yes. to do? No answers. But the questions are getting very clear now. Nine years later, I'm kind of slow. I'm invited to a presentation on ending world hunger, the Hunger Project. Now, before that, I was pretty oblivious. But when I got the invitation, I began thinking, well, uh, hunger is inevitable because there are no solutions. Because if there were solutions, somebody would have done something. Would have done them. Yeah. Yeah. So I've so now I'm hopeless. I'm walking in with my bundle of hopelessness, and I realize the obvious when I get there. It's kind of like there's no mystery to growing food or clean water or basic health, literacy. None of that stuff is mysterious. And and I realize that I'm not hopeless about the perceived lack of solutions. I'm hopeless about human nature. People Mm. would just never get around to doing what could be done, but there's one human nature I have some control over, my own, and my questions, why am I here, what am I here to do? So I get involved, and here's where the story ends, this this kind of chapter. I speak to 7,000 high school students in Miami where I grew up, in Los Angeles where I moved, and before I go in to the first classroom, I read a quote from the National Academy of Sciences food nutrition study calling for the political will to end hunger. So I asked mm-hmm. 7,000 high school students what the name of their member of Congress was. I didn't want to know if they wrote them or met them, just the name. Do yes. you know this story? Because I usually love to ask people to guess. I do. I mean, I know okay, the story okay. from We're, your book, but okay, please great. tell it well, to so our audience. Out of, out of 7,000, 200 knew the name of their member of Congress, fewer than 3%. 6,800 didn't know, over 97%. And results started out of this gap between the calls for the political will to end hunger on the one hand and the lack of basic information 
on who represented us in Washington on the other. And so the bottom yeah. line is I'm, I start oblivious. I move to hopeless and then finally <laughs> can kind of move into action and, and, and get involved. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Somehow the penny dropped for you, Sam, in a profound way through these experiences that you're describing. And, yes. well, maybe on a penny instead of a dime this time, you just turned it all around. I mean, it happens to be interesting that you did go from Miami and teaching and being a musician in the symphony to L.A., and then you had a couple of, since we're doing a little history, we should probably continue with this thread a bit more, and then we'll get into sort of the guts of it. Uh, You met there with a couple of uh, celebrities who were interested in doing something after listening to you speak about world hunger and i know i remember that time when the conversation and uh i didn't certainly know lynn twist at the time who we've had on the show the soul of money the pachimama alliance and uh who worked very closely with uh werner Erhard on the hunger project and raised countless millions of dollars in the name of it and helped so many people but you picked up that thread because yes. you were yourself so inspired. Talk about yes. what you then brought forward and the kind of citizen action began out of that. Well, uh, this is a, little, a different piece of it all. I mean, one, the Hunger Project was so brilliant in terms of uh, awareness building, awakening, that kind of thing. Yes. Uh, this was another slice of it. It was the what about the political will? What about citizen empowerment? And so yes. what we did was very trial and error. I mean, I, I was at an, an event. Uh, it was called the L.A. World Hunger Event. I met a couple. Uh, they said, we're very inspired, but we're frustrated. We don't know what to do. And I said, well, when I used to live in Miami, I had a group that met every week, but once a month we ended our meeting early, and we would write letters to Congress. This is very basic beginner stuff. And they said, well, yes. let's do it at our house next week. And I call a friend uh, they, uh, who happened to be on the same TV show that this one other woman was, uh, uh, and I said, you want to come? And she said, no, I can't come. Let's do it at my house the week after. And all of a sudden, in, in a month, I'm driving to six different locations, and mm-hmm. we're just trial and erroring our way <laughs> to uh, putting this That's together. That's a great and, as, as a good, But as a, an example, I said, well, why should I drive to six locations why don't we get everyone together in one? We'll write our letters, and then people can go home and write their own letters. Well, people didn't sign up for leading it. They signed up for me driving over. So we got different leaders, and at one point, we have like eight cities, eight groups near L.A., and two of the people are going to move. They're moving to Portland, Oregon, and UC Berkeley. I said, well, why? we've got two-way calling. Why don't we hook you in by conference call? Well, it's voila, it's probably 1981 now, and we've got a, yes. our first conference call. Now, we didn't start having guest speakers till 83 uh, yes. kind of thing. But, but uh-huh. if I, I, I want to read you one excerpt from the book. and it, to give, It's an excerpt about I'm a substitute teacher in the LSA schools. My training is in music, and um, I had organized – I want to tell you this whole part. I'd organized the U.S. Senate candidate forum, U.S. Senate, in 82, in April. And now with a friend in New York, I was organizing a congressional forum in L.A. I was a substitute teacher. And my friend in New York, Cameron Duncan, who passed away 25 years ago, a lovely, lovely man, uh, was the assistant to the window designer at Bendel's department store. I mean, he was the assistant. I was a sub. And we're organizing these candidate forms. And so in the book, I tell the story about I'm meeting with a writer for the L.A. Times, and I'm telling her that, you know, editorial people at the TV stations didn't think hunger was a state or a local issue. She was shocked and a little nervous when she said, well, did you call the L.A. Times editorial? I said, yeah, but they never returned my call. She said, well, call Kay Mills. She's the only woman on the editorial board. So I call Kay Mills from a payphone at a junior high school 
where I'm a substitute teacher on a break. And Kay says to me on the phone, well, you know, we don't do editorials on World Food Day or Labor Day. Why don't we pick an issue and do one? And I said, okay, I'll send you materials. And then I leave the pay phone, and that's, that's history, and go back to my classroom. And uh, I say the following. That telephone call and the editorial that followed altered my sense of myself and what was possible. It was normal yes. for me to distribute 100 copies of an action sheet or article. But when that first editorial appeared, I remember thinking, not only has the LA Times written it for us, but they've made one million copies of it, and they've distributed, mm. delivered it too. How wonderful. Yeah. And this last bit, my early morning dash to the front yard to pick the, up the LA Times was my run to democracy. I realized <laughs> that I had the right job to make a difference, substitute teacher. I realized yeah. that I had the right training to make a difference, music. I realized yeah. that I had the right bank account to make a difference, nearly zero. I realized <laughs> that making a difference wasn't a function of any of these. It was a function of commitment and persistence. That's, yeah. that's a personal breakthrough. Yeah. And then, then I could Truly. coach other people with their paper in Hartford, Connecticut, or Miami, Florida, or Atlanta, Georgia, because mm-hmm. I had mm-hmm. breakthrough myself. Yes, yes. Oh, that is a beautiful story, Sam. It, it really tells the story of how exactly. things change. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. you could say it's rags to riches, but not materially, but spiritually. Yeah. That people yeah, and can, right? go through an apotheosis of a breakthrough where they see through to the other side and say, if I harness my inner resources and I commit them to a certain outcome, be it world hunger and let's say, you know, world nutrition, really, that's what we really want to do, nourish all beings. And we want to nourish them physically and we want to nourish them materially. emotionally, then yeah. you have, uh, you know, you've won. You've really won. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, there's a drawing in one of the new chapters of the book where on one side of the page is a small circle that's labeled your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And to the right is a much light, larger circle that's labeled where the magic happens. And the, the mm. trick is finding an organization that can empower you in moving out of your comfort zone and over to where the magic happens. And, yes. you know, when I was in that payphone in Los Angeles, there was some comfort zone involved in that, you know. And uh, yeah. the editorial, that, that first one, was where the magic happened for me in that one instance. You know, you're reminding me of a story that really is parallel in many ways. A woman, if I'm not mistaken, just a year ago, uh, I think it was in Nevada, heard about genetically modified organisms in our food that sponsored oftentimes by Monsanto and their affiliate companies and friends. She knew nothing about this or just the slightest wisp of information. Well, she really decided to stick her nose in it. I believe that she had a couple of children, and she started to become gravely concerned about what was in our food and the way it was being, at its deepest level, DNA, manipulated in ways that science had no way to tell whether it was safe or not. In fact, most of the tests and research shows that it's not safe at all. Anyway, Out of the blue, I think she was a housewife and just uh, no particular political affiliation, organizational skill of any sort. Degrees. Right, degrees, money, just as you were saying, became so outraged at what she felt was a profound deception that she started her own organization and learned about the food labeling, uh, GMO labeling proposition that was on the ballot in California. And she raised such hell. She organized in dozens of cities across the country. I think it may have even gone international, but certainly national. And there were millions of people on the street as a result of this woman's Outrage 
that she yeah. couldn't believe that we were all yeah. being swindled informationally. And I'm just mentioning that that there is this great uh great um opening to one of your chapters, Sam, that is from Time magazine, which I've never seen this before, but I just loved it. Do you want to read it to us? Do you have it in well, front you of know, you? I I have the book in front of me. I'm gonna have to find which um, which chapter it's it really well, was while you're a, looking you're, I'll read it it's from it, yeah, great. it was a New York it was a Time magazine chapter on person of the year and yeah. uh, so that's what it was taken from that's yeah and so we don't even know who the author is the yeah, author yeah. is yeah full of time oh, and yeah. timeless at the so, same time yeah so I yeah. just found it and it's actually chapter one. And it's, yes. it was from the 1992 issue of Time, and it goes like this. Visionaries yes. are possessed creatures, men and women in the thrall of a belief so powerful that they ignore all else, even reason, to ensure that reality catches up with their dreams. For always behind the action is an idea, a passionate sense of what is eternal in human nature and also of what is coming, but as yet unseen, just over the horizon. Mm, that is so powerful. That yeah. really is. Yeah. What yeah. I'm gathering you know, from you, and yeah, I'm sorry. Please go on. If if I could just say, say this, it's a related quote in one way, in that it's it's a quote that I think's helped me, and then a friend uh, who founded Citizens Climate Lobby to say, yes, go for it. And it's a quote from inventor and futurist Buckminster Fuller, who said, the things to do are the things that need doing, that you see need to be done, and that no one else seems to see needs to be done. Because at first, maybe no one else sees it. But when I asked 7,000 students what the name of their member of Congress was, and fewer than 3% knew, I saw something that needed doing that at that moment no, no one else seemed much to see kind of thing. And that really gave me some more permission you to, you know, to, to go for it. And, and uh, I think you quotes like that are really important. It's really uh, true. It's really true. And since you mentioned Buckminster Fuller, I was at a, a Buckminster Fuller uh, event. Uh, the Institute had uh, a grant they were uh, giving to the most uh, innovative technology and company uh, doing great things. It was called Ecovative. It was right down here at the Great Hall of Cooper Union where Abraham Lincoln once spoke, just down the block from me here. And um, one of the quotes, actually this was from a talk I gave in Boulder myself. I used this quote, but they mentioned it that evening as well. And that is, you want to know what the future is? Design it. And yeah. that is yeah. Buckminster Fuller. So I so appreciate yeah. your quoting him. We are speaking with the author of Reclaiming Democracy, Reclaiming Our Democracy, which has recently uh, passed its 10th anniversary, uh, Healing the Break Between People and Government. Sam Daly Harris, who is the founder of Results, both a nonpartisan organization and the ed educational aspect of it is a nonprofit, and it has uh, forwards by none other than Marianne Williamson, Marianne Wright Edelman, and you have another one by um, Valerie Harper. Each one of these is uh, is very rich in their own respects, and I, it just goes to say, Sam, how you have taken an idea and you have simply run with it, and you've been running across the country, and you've been running around the, across the world to implement this. I mean, your work has helped, I mean, if I remember correctly, now 11,000 a day more children and families are are eating. Is that, please well, correct me if well, I have me, that. Yeah, let me give you one of the, the updated statistics. One of the things that results volunteers around the U.S. and, uh, frankly, in other countries, too, a little later, started working on was child survival issues where UNICEF, the U.N. Children's Fund, told us in 84 that 41,000 children were dying every day, underlined day, from largely preventable 
underlying preventable malnutrition and disease, things like measles coupled with malnutrition. And so we started lobbying in 84 and 85 and through the 80s and through the 90s and through the 2000s and the 2010s. And in um, uh, two months ago, UNICEF's latest report came out and told us that the 41,000 deaths a day, children, has dropped to 18,000 a day now. Still scandalously high, but yes. if you walked, I think if you walked out on the street and said, well, how's it going? You know, how's like uh, global poverty going or child deaths around the world? How's that yes. going? I think most people would say, well, I don't know. I think everything's kind of going south. I think it's going yeah. to hell in a handbag. You know, I think people right. don't have any sense of progress. And certainly people and results who worked on it for years or even decades, some of yes. the folks who have been around that long, have not only a sense of that progress, but a sense of their contribution to, to, to mm. educating themselves and then educating their member of Congress and then their newspaper and then more uh, to make those kinds of changes happen. That's fabulous. I mean, really, I mean, you're talking about a 60, 65% change and Certainly, there are a number of initiatives uh, worldwide, NGOs and et cetera, that have helped to contribute to that um, that change, which is phenomenal. But no, absolutely, would, yeah, I do want to make this distinction. Obvious yeah, that you that have alone, had a obviously. significant hand in this. Yeah, please. Yeah, I, I yeah, I do want to make it clear. We didn't do it alone, but we were at the center of the advocacy work around yeah. that. Where many mm-hmm. others had the vaccination, the, the needle, or the whatever, the oral rehydration yeah. therapy in their hands, we right. were empowering such that there was zero funding for the Child Survival Fund in, in 1984, and now it's 600 million a year of, uh, among various bilateral accounts on child survival and maternal health, and that's part, that doesn't From happen zero to naturally. 600 million. Yes, in bilateral funding. That doesn't even count some multilateral funding. And that is phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. That is, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's hard to even respond to that profound yeah. change. I'd love for you to go through what the process is, because, you know, world hunger and healing that issue is obviously so major. And unfortunately, um, its severity is matched these days with what's going on with climate change and the number Mm -hmm. of climate refugees that are occurring Mm -hmm. more and more across the world, which, of course, dovetails right there with world hunger and malnutrition and desertification and, and world thirst is another yeah. major issue, and it's not quite categorized that way. I guess I'm just saying it right now. But world yeah. thirst is going to be a major, major issue that's already beginning to have its effects. You outlined really uh, elegantly that the issue, looking at yourself as an example, uh, is initially psychological. How we go from hopelessness and helplessness into a state of by deconstructing the truth and saying, my God, wait a minute, this is simple. It's not hard to grow food. It's not hard to clean water. It's not hard to cultivate soil. This is, this is not rocket science. Where's the political will? So through your commitment, you, you changed worlds, and you still are. What is the next step that you walk people through when they want to start getting alive and awake in these domains? Well, let me, uh, let me give you uh, a tell-a-story and, and do a little bit of a reading uh, to give people another flavor for what we're talking about. This is a story from one of the new chapters in the book, and the woman's name is Ellie Sparks, and when she was writing it or saying it, she was living in Richmond, Virginia. Now she's about an hour outside. Her member of Congress is Eric Cantor, the House Majority Leader. Her newspaper is the Richmond Times-Dispatch. And she says, and it's in the book, she says, 
you know, when I started with Citizens Climate Lobby, I was suffering from climate trauma. I would read Mm. Bill McKibben's book, Earth, and I would weep at home, and I would weep at work. And then she joined Citizen Climate Lobby, and 18 months later, she's co-leading a workshop on creating relationships with members of Congress and editorial writers. And she starts her thing out by saying, and I've done this with uh, campus groups, uh, well, 18 campuses this fall, and the first thing she says is, our executive director, Mark Reynolds, likes to say, we're betting the farm on relationships. And I interrupt and say, he didn't say we're betting the farm on mouse clicks or we're betting Mm. the farm on messages left at the switchboard. He said we're betting the farm on relationships. So go get a relationship with your member of Congress and editorial writers. And Ellie says, well, most of us had never done that before. What in the world Mm. does a relationship with a member of Congress look like? Uh, How do you get a relationship with an editorial writer? She said, I needed a model. Some people have used other models, like a work relationship. You know, I adore romantic relationships, so I use romance as my model. (laughs) She said, you know, that first meeting with the editorial writer, it's like a blind date, only you've decided ahead of time you're going to marry this fellow. You'll be sweet and interesting, (laughs) not too intense. If it doesn't work with the editorial writer, you'll marry one of his friends at the paper, the city editor, environment writer, business (laughs) editor, someone – at this paper, we'll find. Now, I'd say on college campus, campuses, who do you know that talks like this? She said, right. someone at this paper will find you interesting and compelling. Then she says all this great other stuff. I'm going to skip it right now, but I want to read her last paragraph. She goes to 20 congressional offices with, with her team, and she has uh-huh. 20 congressional meetings on climate change. This is a year ago, July, and she says the following. During our conference, I met with 20 congressional offices. I met with many folks whose view of the world was very different than mine. Going into their offices was hard. I had to let go of a lot of emotional baggage. I could no longer judge them or hold hostility in my heart towards them. I had to let go of my fear of climate change and my fear that they wouldn't listen to me. I had to center myself in love. Releasing fear and centering in love, this is sacred and profound work, end of quote. Well, you know, I think if I asked most people to go meet with 20 congressional offices on anything, let's say climate change in this case, I think they'd say, well, this is like hard work or dirty work or hopeless work. And I think we all need to get to where Ellie got to, that this is sacred and profound work, and not forget, where did she start, like Ph.D. in political science? No, she actually started with climate trauma yes. and moved to Pain. sacred and profound work. That's yes. the transformation of my new yes. Center for Citizen Empowerment and Transformation. That's the transformation piece. Um, actually, you know, we were doing quotes earlier, and you love that one from Time Magazine. I want to just throw this one yes. into the mix. Uh, from uh, W.H. Murray's uh, The Scottish Himalayan Expedition, quote, until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there's one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one commits oneself, then providence moves too. I've learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. End of quote. And, Mm. you know, that's part of what we're talking about. I mean, you know, that's part of the the gig here. Oh, my. I I can really hear, Sam, how you have inspired so many of these thousands of high school students that you have spoken with i mean not only are you yourself eloquent but you are just you are just on fire with the passion 
of making yeah. a positive change in this world. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I have great admiration for it, and I'm, I'm so glad to see it. Uh, another point that you make uh, early on in your book, which I also think is excellent, is uh, going back to Buckminster Fuller again and his image of spaceship Earth, that we are not yeah. the passengers, but we are the crew. And that's yes. another yeah, that, very interesting shift in yeah, yeah. consciousness. And uh, that was actually speak, if you will. Apollo yeah. astronaut Rusty Schweikert took Fuller's spaceship Earth imagery, and yeah. uh, Schweikert said, "We aren't passengers on spaceship Earth. We're the crew. We aren't residents <laughs> on this planet. We're citizens. The difference in both right. cases is responsibility." And I say yeah. in the book. Like in the mid-'80s when we were just beginning to kick it and really make things happen, we would get up out of our passenger seat and walk up to the cockpit and notice there's nobody up there. And, that, you know, in a sense, those, those cockpit seats are our seats. And, you right. know, it's just something we need to – but we have to do our homework. And that gets back to this methodology, and maybe I can touch on that for a moment. Yeah. Um, Results yeah, use it. Yeah. I've been coaching uh, Citizens Climate Lobby. They use it. I've been coaching the Peace Alliance. They use it. Uh, and it's oversimplified. I would say, you know, most organizations don't give us much. They kind of see our hopelessness, and they give us kind of actions congruent with it. They ask for a yeah. mouse click here, a check there, but they don't yes. give us a rich curriculum. And so this, mm-hmm. other, this methodology has this monthly nationwide conference call with guest speakers, a Q&A, a section on grassroots victories, successes. Uh, but, you know, when someone tells a success, I always urge them to start with the struggle. Tell me what the struggle was. Don't just tell me you met with your member of Congress, it was a blast, you can't wait to do it again. Let me know that it took 12 phone calls to get the appointment. Let me know that you had to meet with the district director first. You know, let me know that your knees were knocking before you went in. Because if you tell me that part, then I, the listeners around the country, the 200, 300, 400 others listening in, yes. can see themselves in the 12 phone calls before you got the appointment. Or, so start with the struggle and then get to the success. But, you know, yes. there's learn a talk. There's a segment to learn to be articulate, like an elevator speech. We call it a laser talk so that, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're pushed out onto the dance floor, really, uh, yeah. to be a spokesperson for this. And then there's always an action that everyone can take uh, and beyond. So these are the these are little glimpses of this structure that, uh, that help people forward. Maybe I could just tell you how Citizens Climate Lobby started and what what this kind of structure mattered. I have a friend. His name is Marshall Saunders. He's a friend from Results. And Marshall called me up one day, and he said, I saw Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth three times in ten days. And then I was (laughs) one of the thousand that went to Nashville to learn to do the slideshow. And then I came home to San Diego, and I led it 43 times. And then after he talked to me, he led it some more. But he said, mm-hmm. early on, I realized I was giving people 98% the problem and 2% what they could do about it. Solution. And that, right. Yeah, and they couldn't buy enough Priuses or, or change enough light bulbs to make up for what the government <laughs> right. was or wasn't doing. I mean, he even said sure. one day – I was reading the paper, San Diego Union-Tribune, and I was drinking my coffee, and I saw an article that said the Congress had approved $18 billion in fossil fuel subsidies yesterday, and that same day I'd convinced 18 people to change their light bulbs. Mm -hmm. He said, this is never going to work. So he asked me to coach him in starting Citizens Climate Lobby. We started... July of 07, they, their, his first meeting was October of 07, so it turned six years old in October. So they didn't mm-hmm. exist six years ago, basically. Mm-hmm. And now they had no groups. Now they have 141 chapters in the U.S. and Canada. In the first uh, 10 months of this year, 
Their volunteers have had 998 letters to the editor published on their issue, which is a carbon tax and dividends. Their volunteers in the U.S. and Canada have had 203 op-eds published, and they've had 669 meetings with members of Congress or their staff. And you'll remember the story I just told and read about L.A. Sparks. That's sure. one of those meetings. Actually, her meeting was the first meeting. with uh, They were having the first meeting with uh, the legislative director since then, They've had seven meetings with Eric Cantor's legislative director in 18 months, and in June they had their eighth meeting, with, and it was with Eric Cantor himself. But, it's, uh, but they, they use this methodology of the conference call with the guest speaker and that grassroots victories and uh, learning a, a talk and an action that everyone can take right there on the spot and, and it's really um, empowered people. Uh, if you let me tell one more story about this. Oh, yes, uh, please. The, this, is, uh, uh, this is fabulous. I mean, it, it I'm always – I take your I take your juicy stories and words and yeah. for, synthesize them into uh, a plan of action for yeah. people to digest. It's brilliant. So please exactly. tell yeah. another. Well, so this goes back to my, uh, my friend Ellie. And she's saying, you know, we were on the call. This is February two years ago. Uh, she said, we were on the call in December, and you told us to go get a meeting with our member of Congress. Our member of Congress is Eric Cantor. We didn't get a meeting with him. We got a meeting with his legislative director. And they've since had seven with the ledge director. Uh, and uh, she said, there were four of us who decided to go, and we had two two-hour preparatory meetings. And one of the four of us is a retired naval meteorologist, so he brought more of the science to the meeting. Mm. And another of us is kind of like an executive coach, so he coached us in the uh, agenda. He actually urged us to, which we did, we had a flip chart, and we asked the ledge director, what are Congressman uh, Cantor's values in the area of energy, economy, and environment? And we wrote them on the flip chart as he answered. And she said another of the four of us is Fred, and Fred is Jewish, and the congressman is Jewish, and Fred's known for his baking in the Richmond community, and he baked two challah breads, one for the congressman (laughs) and one for the legislative director. So they go into this meeting. It's their first meeting ever, and the legislative director at the end of the meeting says, you were the most prepared group I have ever met with. And so I'm telling this story, and I'm telling this story to the head of CARE and Save the Children and U.S. Fund for UNICEF and Oxfam America. And at the end of the story, I say, you know, I think if I ask an ordinary climate activist to go meet with Eric Cantor or his legislative director, I think they'd say, now, which wall do you want us to bang our head against? Are you thinking that (laughs) wall over there or this wall over here? So I'm telling this story to the CEO of an environmental group in the U.S. with 4 million stakeholders. I get to the end of the story, but I don't get to the wall-banging stuff. And the CEO looks at me and says, you know, we wouldn't meet with the Eric Cantors of the world. And then cups hands in front and says, we'd meet with those who are with us. And the hands are rocking back and forth. Or those we feel we could move. But we wouldn't meet with the Eric Cantors of the world, which for me is, you know, which wall do you want me to bang my head against? We wouldn't meet sure. with. So it's just another kind of expression of, yeah, I'm going to put my money on the people who will meet with the Eric Cantors of the world. We've got too big a yeah. problem to sort people out and uh, educate some and not educate the others. Well, you're either singing to the choir or you are going exactly. to the people who are sing off key. Exactly. You know? Exactly. So exactly. your point is yeah. very well made. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, you are slipping through the cracks. You are using your, uh, can I put it, your musical talent in a creative way by coaching the way you are to humanize the process. And you make another incredibly good point at the beginning of your book, Sam, 
that. In fact, let me let everyone know you are listening to Sam Daly Harris on Mitchell J. Rabin's A Better World, and we're discussing his book, Reclaiming Our Democracy, Healing the Break Between People and Government. And it's, it's just brilliant. I'm, I'm so inspired by what you're doing, Sam. I really am. Uh, you make a very good point at the beginning that most people, again, you want to really get a sense of who the people are as people, deconstruct it. They tend to be lawyers, most people in Congress and the Senate. They tend to have a background in law or business. They oftentimes go into politics for, you know, I, let me be generous and say, they have their own personal business slash professional agendas, but they oftentimes have a larger agenda that is seeking to really serve their constituency and serve the world at large. Okay, Let, I think that's a very reasonable premise, a healthy premise, in fact, to to start from a point of departure. Well, they don't know about other topics and subjects other or issues yeah. other than the ones that they entered. Oh, they pick up a little knowledge here and a tidbit there, but it's really very dilettantish. And yeah. you make that point loud and clear, and I honestly never thought about it until yeah. I heard you put it that way. And why don't you tell the story, if you would, about, um, if you'd like to, about Representative Don Lundgren in California, Republican, who knew nothing about world hunger and hardly even really knew it existed. That's actually the story of the first ever meeting with a member of Congress that we had as a results kind of group. And it was in Seal Beach, uh, California, kind of near L.A. and near Long Beach, California. And and it was in someone's living room. And we showed a John Denver film, I Want to Live. It was like 45 minutes long. It was amazing that he was there and stayed. And when the film yeah. was over, Dan Lundgren, who was the congressman at that point for that area, has since been uh, lieutenant governor of California, it's whatever, but he kind of was stammering as if he was, A, shaken and moved by the video, and B, had never spoken about this much before. So he said some things in some halting terms, and then we got to the questions. And the first questioner said, do you get many letters on world hunger? And Congressman Lundgren looks at the ceiling. It's like taking forever. <laughs> then he looks down at us and he says, there's this Methodist minister in Long Beach. To the question, do you get many letters on world one hunger? One letter. Answers, I got one there's letter. This me- <laughs> there's this Methodist minister in Long Beach. And I say, you know, in the book, that Methodist minister is lonely and needs our yes. partnership. And and but I really urge people who are listening to to look for organizations that empower deeply and on global and domestic poverty results dot org on climate change citizens climate lobby dot org on uh, peace issues. Uh, the PeaceAlliance.org are, are good places to start. And I say to people, even if you only go there to learn the methodology and steal it and take it back to some other issue you might be more committed <laughs> right. to, that's fine yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. It's like steal this book, right? <laughs> exactly. Steal this methodology. Yeah. Exactly. It's yours. And it to the planet, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, Don't even give yeah. me credit, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's brilliant. So to outline, uh, there are many citizens' actions groups of different sorts, many um, hunger groups, NGOs, uh, uh, environmental groups, humanitarian groups of every single star and stripe. In fact, you know, the work of Paul Hawken in Blessed Unrest really yes. outlines so many of Millions. these. Yeah. And yeah. honestly, many of them are really having, let's be straight, uh, a useful a useful effect. Thank God for them all. 
And some, yeah. uh, not so much. Some of them are more like what yeah. you were describing before, Sam. Of uh, We like to work with people, not the Eric Cantors of the world, but the people with whom we feel there's some agreement. But you are advocating an entirely different modality, which I yeah. really appreciate. And yeah. what would you say the distinction between what you're presenting here in results, both the organization and in your book, uh, is that you are really encouraging, like Ms. Sparks said, relationship with specific members of Congress and staying with it with commitment and persistence and rallying around. Is this, please tell me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to read a little, okay. another little section from the book. The woman's name is Cheryl McNamara, and she's in Canada. She is a member of Citizen Climate Lobby. She read a book, and she said, you know, she was so moved. She'd thought about climate before, but it put it to the back of her mind. And now with this book, she said, I was so moved by it, and I imagined myself as an old lady, too ill and too weak to do anything, and, you know, it was too late. But it's not. I'm still young and vibrant. So she said, I, I, I'm going to get involved. And she and her partner really lowered their carbon footprint immaculately. And, but said, it's going to take more than just us, you know, and that's going to involve government policy. And she said, after the effort to reduce our footprint, I realized that while it is lower than the North American average, it wasn't enough. We needed help. We needed others to drastically reduce their footprint, and only government policy could help make that happen. Around that time, I was part of the communications team for a rally on Parliament Hill in Ottawa called C-Day, Fill the Hill. Well, there were two things that struck me about that experience. One, that journalists are, for the most part, clearly uneducated on the issue. And two, mm. we, we spent a lot of time and effort on an event that was largely ignored outside the few thousand people who made a lot of noise outside Parliament that day. I asked myself, what was preventing us from going inside and actually talking to policy and lawmakers about this pressing problem? Why weren't we doing that? And I respond, well, the sad answer as to why we aren't going inside and talking to the lawmakers is that most people who want big change can't find an organization capable of empowering them at a level equal to their desire for change. Most organizations ask us for nothing more than a mouse click and a check. They see us as little children who are too busy with play, too distracted, too naive, and too incapable of doing the homework necessary to go really deep with our democracy. But when citizens find an organization that treats them as capable adults, then miracles can happen. And, uh, mm. you know, I was meeting with a wonderful little group of folks this morning at my home. They were from a group, Represent Us, focuses um, on uh, a campaign finance reform and getting money out of politics. And I mm-hmm. said to them, you know, I, when I was on my tour this fall, either in Q&A or afterward in a private conversation, someone would come up to me and say, uh, you know, if we don't get money out of politics, we're in big trouble. That's, that's the, the main issue. Or someone would say, you know, if we don't deal with climate change, we're toast. That's the main issue. And I said, no, I don't agree with either of those. It's the hopelessness that's the main issue. That's the one that we have to fix. Then all of the rest of it will get solved. But it's yep. like our discouragement and cynicism that I see as the biggest impediment to getting the change we need. Very powerful, Sam. Very powerful. I really laud the point. It can't be said often enough, and I've know, I know you've been saying it thousands of times since the 70s when you began these initiatives, and it's, it's yeah. awesome. Uh, the point about educating the politicians, educating your representatives, number one, knowing their names, and then knowing, not assuming that they know the ins and outs of your particular subject, topic, issue, yeah. Yeah. and taking yeah. the time with respect and walking them through it and its implications and its ramifications for both our yeah. country and then the globe itself. 
I think yeah, these yeah. are very important yeah. uh, things. Now, you know, uh, let's come back for a moment to mouse clicking and uh, online petitions and voting and the like. Yes. You know, yes. uh, I think that there is, and I want to hear what you have to say, I think that there's a yes. very legitimate place for that. And yes. it's using the Internet as technology to really mass engage millions yes. of people that are yes. otherwise not reachable for that's all of the conversation that's related to this, of course. Yes. But sometimes people really are so busy. Sometimes people are working on levels of survival, any number yes. of different things. And clicking yes. that mouse for avaz.org or any number of the others, credo, yes. you know, this is what they can bring to the table at that moment. Could you talk about that and what you well, have yeah, seen as effectiveness yeah, to be what I want or to not say be? About it. Yeah, I'm not saying to stop mouse clicking. I'm just saying don't stop there. If you're okay. capable and able. And said another way, that Paul Loeb, who wrote Soul of a Citizen, said to me this year, um, you know those email petitions to Congress? Those are counted. But they're yes. also discounted. And yes. so we need to, you know, we need to do it when we can do it, and we need to go beyond it when we can go yes. beyond it. That's all. Yeah. Yes. No, well, well put, well put. And I actually do those probably in such type of activism because it's right in my inbox and I right. do it. And I post I it think on we all Facebook. Do. I think so. Yeah. And I personalize the letters and I, mm -hmm. I, I engage. What you're talking about, and I also do write letters to Congress people as well, mm -hmm. and I do make phone calls, and I do use a better world media as a platform yeah. for speaking. Yeah. But uh, I want to also say, I mean, to wit, so to speak, um, but there's another level that you are bringing forth, forth that I just think is so valuable, which is the personal involvement the commitment rousing the commitment and once that's done and hopelessness is overcome then there isn't anything that we cannot do which is what all of the greats have always yeah. said yeah and uh, there's maybe uh, i can please maybe no, i don't no, please go ahead. i think we're coming toward the end i could close with a favorite quote from george yeah. george bernard shaw's man and superman uh, this yeah. is the true joy in life, the being used for a purpose, recognized by yourself as a mighty one, the being a force of nature instead of a selfish, feverish little clod of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community, and it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, for the harder I work, the more I live. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a sort of splendid torch, which I've got hold of for the moment, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. End of quote. That is oh. Beautiful, beautiful. I, if, I, if I just did the beginning again only, this is the true joy in life, the being used yes. for a purpose, recognized yes. by yourself as the as a mighty one. That's, yes. Uh, yeah, you know, you actually remind me. I'm not going to let you go just yet. We have another couple of minutes. I want to use them. I want to use them well. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I heard that Werner Earhart, who was, of course, the impetus behind the formation of S and later the forum, out of which came the Hunger Project, to give credit where it is, it is due. And yes, yep. he had many, many antecedents from many different traditions, uh, philosophical, uh, spiritual, East and West, uh, even yep. L. Ron Hubbard. So we understand that he wasn't the formulator sure, of sure. all of this good work, but a, uh, a reformulator in a brilliant way, I feel, and has yep. been of 
tremendous service to this planet. Um, and But I want to uh, say that I heard that on his epitaph, he wanted written, used up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which just dovetails, of course, with everything you yeah. were just reading there. Yeah. But I want to bring a very uh, other point here, which is the existence of organizations like ALEC, like the existence of uh, the billionaire groups that have aligned with the Tea Party. The fact that there is a duopoly, there's a two-party system that uh, can hardly be differentiated one from the other because they're reaching into the same pockets down on Wall Street and everywhere else they can. So we're dealing with um, certain very powerful forces. For instance, you mentioned the $18 billion given as subsidies to the oil industry with a yep. flick of a pen and lots of money changing hands. You know, how, even if you do get an audience with the Eric Cantors of Congress, even right. if you do get yourself in, these people are running businesses out of their Senate and congressional offices. And it has them as the head of it running for office again and again. How do you deal with that? Well, the way I look at it is uh, we have the money in politics work because the public is asleep. So in other words, if I'm a member of Congress, I raise a bunch of money so I can run a bunch of TV ads before the election and wake up just enough people to get reelected. Then they go back to sleep, and I raise a bunch of money so I can run some TV ads just before the election to wake up just enough people so I can get reelected. Well, if we were awake, the ads wouldn't make any difference. We would see right through them. If we were yep. awake, you know, the money wouldn't matter because it's, it's, it's all hooey when you know what's going on. And so, you know, at some level, that's the gig, to wake up the public so that the money yeah. doesn't work. Very interesting. I, only and ideas if the work. money – I'm sorry? Yeah, only ideas work, not money. Only ideas work, yes. No, no, that's a yeah. profound comment. And what it also suggests, Sam, is that um, when people are conscious, uh, they won't allow the money to work. Exactly. We can witness exactly. the transactions – uh, that are taking exactly. place, like those subsidies, or like Alec exactly. writing legislation on city, state, and federal levels for yeah. our Congress people. But when this comes to light and people are uh, are engaged, the constituency at the end of the day must be pleased, or there will be hell to pay. Yes, absolutely. Right now, there's one so, last point that you made in the book that I I really do want to give voice to. It doesn't matter. I'll I'll formulate it my way and please reshape it as you see fit. It doesn't matter who your representative is. It's good to know their name. Um, But it doesn't matter if they are if they are Chinese, if they are American, I mean, you know, ethnicity, whether black, pink, or purple. It doesn't matter if they're well-known. It doesn't matter if they're rich. It doesn't matter anything. They are our legislators. We don't have to hope and pray that the right person gets in. The person who will do the will of the people is the right person. Yep. Yep. And then we need to do our homework, educate ourselves, so we can really educate and empower them uh, to new levels of awareness and action. And so if any of the listeners are interested in global or domestic poverty, I urge them to go to results.org. And if they're interested in climate change, I urge them to go to citizensclimatelobby.org. And if it's peace issues, thepeacealliance.org. And then the book is at reclaimingourdemocracy.org. Exactly. That's wonderful. Sam Daly-Harris, a pleasure yet again. I love your work. Good. It's been a thrill. And we'll continue on the work and continue to support you. We have you all over our website, and we will continue as well. Okay? Thank you so much. Yeah. Absolutely. Great to have you, Sam. Yeah. We've spent the hour 
with Sam Daly Harris, the author of Reclaiming Our Democracy, Healing the Break Between People and Government, originally a percussionist in the Miami Philharmonic Orchestra, took his savvy, took his creative spirit, and once he got struck by a sense of purpose uh, in looking, doing some deep soul-searching, he moved into the domain of dealing with hunger and politics and how to bring the will of the people forward so that we can collectively make a difference in our world. So that's the kind of interview we love to have here on A Better World, people who are just teeming with love for the planet, teeming with love for sentient life, and really are spending their lives making a difference. It's not about money. It's not about anything but being of service and believing that you can make a difference. And Sam Daly Harris laid that out so beautifully for us all tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, please take this show, take the link, and spread it around. It can really make a difference in people's lives. In a world of so much hopelessness, they can be uplifted, educated, and inspired, which is the purpose of A Better World Radio and TV every week. If you do not yet get our newsletter, please go to www abetterworld.tv abetterworld.tv very easy to remember and uh, sign up for our free newsletter watch our TV show which can be seen either directly on Manhattan Cable TV every Tuesday night at 10.30 until we get that time changed and or online at that very same website, abetterworld.tv. Every Tuesday night, it is webcast. It is simulcast. And we'd love to have you part of A Better World family. You can also join us at Facebook, A Better World Media. Like us, Google Plus us, follow us on Twitter. All of the above is at the website. Easy to do. Love to have you. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Thanks so much for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.